Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So much to talk about with Jared Bernstein, former economic advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, now a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. He joins Tom in our Bloomberg 991 newsroom down in Washington, D.C. And uh, Tom, a great interview. Uh, Stan Fisher still a believer, still believes we're going to have higher inflation. He really does. I mean, Jared walked in the door and said, so what do you think? Hawkish as always. And really, this goes, as Jared knows, back to the history of Stan Fisher through the 70s and 80s as someone always erring towards a normalization of rates in a time of accommodation. And I'll be honest, between the lines, and it's always that kind of interview with a Fed official, uh, David, it was that kind of interview. We were ultra-accommodative and we're less ultra-accommodative right now. Thank you to the many people listening who've sent in some worthies, uh, sent in kind notes. They were listening to uh, really, uh, David, a, a, a time of transition, which means that Jared Bernstein is absolutely the perfect person to speak to now. For those of you that don't know, Jared Bernstein, as I've said for years, is a liberal conservatives must listen to, uh, a force at the Economic Policy Institute for years, his public service uh, to Vice President Biden. Yes, he's a liberal economist. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> Don't mention it on air and now at the center on <laughs> budget late. and you just said it. policy <laughs> of administration. Uh, Jared, how far is the divide between liberal and conservative economists? I would yeah. suggest it's not as wide as the media puts it. I mean, this is going to sound a little annoying uh, to people, but uh, you know, Paul Krugman says the facts have a liberal bias. Uh, so I, I, I really do try to go by the numbers. Uh, so when I, when I look at uh, – take the Federal Reserve, for example. When I look at inflation, uh, I form a view there. Inflation, obviously, very quiescent. So uh, the normalization campaign uh, should move very, very slowly in my view. When I look at tax policy, I look at, I look at the numbers and that's how, how we make our call. I think too often in economics, we have ideology trumping data and I just try to avoid that. Jared Bernstein, help us mark this moment. Uh, Tom mentioning the transition we're seeing at the Fed. Stan Fisher here with just days left uh, in that role before he moves on to whatever's uh, next. There's a lot of transition happening here. I mentioned the vacancies at, at the top of the show. How, how transformative a moment is this? I think it's uh, potentially quite transformative, and I actually think this is a somewhat difficult time to be going through so many transitions. Uh, The Federal Reserve is involved in a very delicate task right now. Obviously, I'm talking about uh, unwinding the the very large balance sheet, but also the kind of data-driven normalization campaign. You know, you've got uh, essentially Janet Yellen at the wheel uh, communicating, I think, very clearly to markets, giving uh, I, I think it, it, extremely useful forward guidance, talking about uh, the data, talking about the models. And at a time like this, to be replacing sorry, your starting team with, uh, with unknowns, I think it creates a le- potentially creates a, a level of uncertainty that is potentially damaging. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that I've really been stressing the importance of Donald Trump reappointing Janet mm-hmm. Yellen. Uh, that might sound like an outside-the-box idea, but as we all know, she still is a frontrunner. 
What do you make as, as you watch, I call it a parlor game, as you watch all of this play out, the reports of Kevin Warsh heading to the White House to meet with the president or uh, Jay Powell having a, a conversation with him and with the Treasury Secretary? Uh, as well. What are you looking for? How do, you, how do you, you try to figure out, how do you try to piece together what their perspective on monetary policy is? Well, look, I mean, we, uh, parlor game is the right word. And, and, and we, we do in Washington have this uh, unfortunate tendency of kind of, uh, you know, going through the entrails of anything having to do with the Federal Reserve. <laughs> I think the best advice when it comes to all of this is to ignore it all for the most part uh, because Donald Trump is completely unpredictable and you can't figure out what he's going to do based on a meeting he's had with someone else. The better idea is to kind of think through the substance, what would make most sense and for those of us with some sort of a public voice to – to, to put that forth and that's what I've been trying to do in this reappoint Yellen campaign. There's so many themes to talk about. And with you and with your true expertise on fiscal dynamics, how urgent do you feel, Jared, to get a score on a nine-page tax reform mm. proposal? Or is it just a media frenzy and we wait till sometime next year? You know, it, it is urgent in the following sense. I mean, we are uh, – uh, you mentioned fiscal uh, – our fiscal constraints. We are a country that simply based on our aging demographics alone, uh, we're going to need more revenues down the road, not less. So when I hear uh, the Republicans putting forth a bill that threatens to lose at least $2 trillion over 10 years uh, based on pretty conventional scorekeeping uh, uh, based on the details we know so far, mm. that strikes me as extremely problematic. So, yes, we, we definitely need to pay attention to those numbers. I, I mean, within the numbers, and I've seen $1.5 trillion and it goes out to $2.4 trillion is maybe the high point mm -hmm. I've seen in different punditry. Explain to our audience what that number actually is. I, I mean, I, I guess it's a tenth yeah. of our fiscal budget, but w what's it mean to a pro like you? Well, I mean, in terms of uh, you really should scale those numbers by GDP. And, uh, you know, over, over a 10-year okay. period, we're, we're talking about a percent, maybe less than a percent of GDP. Uh, but what we're, what we're what we're talking about from my perspective is the fact that the Congressional Budget Office tells us, and on this point, I don't think there's really any argumentation at all, that over the next 10 years, we're going to need 2.5% of GDP, more revenue to meet our obligations vis-a-vis uh, -vis Social Security, Medicare, uh, other uh, some of these uh, larger government programs, the social insurance programs, if you will. So the idea that we can somehow meet our promises at the same time uh, that we uh, cut taxes uh, uh, that severely, it just, it's just not arithmetic. It's just, it's just mm. fantasy. And then when you start talking about how, how growth effects are going to make up the difference, you know, nobody who's not being paid to believe that believes it. Let me uh, bring things full circle here. We're going to come back with you for another block as well. But Tom asked you about the difference between liberal economics and conservative economics. Let me ask you about the state of nonpartisan economic analysis in Washington, D.C. We're all struck by this story about a paper being pulled from the Treasury Department mm. website recently, a tax analysis paper, uh, the conclusions of which ran contrary to what the Treasury Secretary thinks about tax reform. I'm struck by what's been said about the Tax Policy Center's analysis mm. of this proposal that was released last week. Kevin Brady saying the analysis, a work of fiction that Stephen King would have been proud of. Uh, mm. Aaron Hatch, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, saying here that no respectable academic or researcher was willing to have their name associated with something so haphazardly cobbled together. I think Donald Marin, former head of the CBO, might take exception to that. What's the state of nonpartisan analysis in uh, Washington, D.C.? How imperiled is it? You know, that, that litany you just ran through, I got to say, it's just downright depressing to me because 
You've seen attacks on the Congressional Budget Office, on the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center. By the way, uh, I, I recently found out that the, the three top directors of the, of, of the TPC, the Tax Policy Center, all used to work for Republicans. Ah. And so these, these are by-the-numbers folks, and they don't have a thumb on the scale. Now, Washington is filled with partisan economics. You know, I think it was um, Mnuchin the other day, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said, I can get lots of economists on TV to endorse my plan and to tell you that it will pay for itself. That's true. But that doesn't mean that the plan will pay for itself. That just means that they can oh. cherry pick the opinions they want. I, I was... I, I was just very quickly here, Jared, and we'll come back. Wonderful to have you with us for this half hour to get started in Washington. I, I would suggest you and Holtzikin are on maybe modestly different pages, but there's Douglas Holtzikin the other day saying the vector on deficit to GDP is 5-6, and he was the first one who said 7% of GDP. Do you share the same concern that, that, that the vector that we're seeing now could continue out to something newsworthy? Yeah, Doug and I share this view. Doug, is an, he's a good example of an economist. Uh, on the other side of the aisle, who I, I, I very much respect. And he's like myself. And like, by the way, lots of economists on, uh, from, from a more conservative perspective to whom I've discussed about this, we are all worried about the impact of this tax plan on deficits and debt. And it just shows you that yeah. these alleged deficit hawks, they're chicken hawks when it comes yeah. to the real deal. This is what we love to do. I'm Bloomberg Surveillance folks. David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keene at 99.1 FM News Bureau in Washington to have the vice chairman of the Fed with us and then to follow up with one of the great analysts of monetary and fiscal economics in Washington, Jared Bernstein of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities as well. Thrilled to have him with us. Uh, this morning. We've talked a lot about monetary policy. Jerry, let me ask you about the uh, the debate over tax reform. Uh, we've seen one page go to two pages, go to nine pages. We've seen the framework sent up to Capitol Hill. Uh, Senator Orrin Hatch saying the Senate Finance Committee is where this thing is going to be uh, written. What are you going to be watching for as you, as you look for mm-hmm. points of agreement and, and disagreement among the Republican ranks particularly? Actually, there's a very important thing to be watching for this very day. Republicans are suggesting now that they're going to give up on their repeal of the state and local tax deduction. That is, they were going to repeal uh, this deduction in, uh, in order to help pay for their, for their tax cut. Uh, now they're e- either cutting that back or they're going to leave it in place. So the thing to watch for is will they now cut their ask in terms of the magnitude of the tax cut uh, because they're cutting a pay-for. As they lose part of a pay-for, the arithmetic would suggest they'd have to cut back what they're asking for in tax cuts. If they don't, it's a signal that they're really completely detached from any concerns about the deficit or debt implications of this plan. Even if they do, uh, those implications are already quite negative. Who are the leaders you're watching here? I mentioned Senator Hatch, uh, Chairman Kevin Brady, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, obviously working on this issue uh, in very minute detail as as well. Are are you looking to them? Are you looking to to House Speaker Paul Ryan? Uh, Are you even casting your eyes a little west looking at at the White House as well? I'm not so much looking at the White House because they're kind of distracted with a bunch of other things. And, and I'm not so much looking at the, quote, big six, the uh, architects of the plan. What I'm looking at uh, is the Republican caucus. Remember, it was the Republican caucus that brought down uh, their attempt to repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act. And it's not a slam dunk that they're going to have their uh, be able to muster their troops behind them on the tax cut either. So that's where I think you want to look if you're trying to figure out where this is, is going. I mean, within 
all of this, and I guess I'm touching back to the 60s because I've been watching the Ken Burns, the Vietnam War uh, effort, which, folks, is spectacular. If you like Tri-X film from Eastman Kodak, you'll love it. The black and white mm-hmm. photos are just breathtaking, mm-hmm. what they've done in the restoration of another time and place. The arch fear of your world, Jared Bernstein, is, oh, no, we're going to have the Walter Heller 60s. Mm. Runaway inflation. Remember that phrase? Whip inflation now. <laughs> we're miles from that, aren't Correct. we? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're miles from the arch Republican fear, aren't we? Yeah, I, I think we are. And uh, it's interesting. It gets back to our uh, where we started our discussion. I think you have to be very careful if you're administering monetary policy to not be fighting really old wars. Uh, and, and, and actually, Chair Yellen was quite articulate about this in a speech he gave last week to the uh, to the NABE. Which people said was an important speech. I found it to yeah. be very important because she really was scratching her head about the underlying model. And, and I think saying quite clearly, we really have to think the fundamental forces driving inflation. So to the extent that you're pulling monetary policy based on memories of runaway 60s and 70s, uh, I, I would recommend that you, you do a pretty serious rethink on that. I want to uh, tilt here in the final minute that we've got uh, with you to Democratic uh, eco-politics. Eco you did public service with Vice uh, President Biden. Some say that Joe will take another run at it. Do we need to see Democratic economic theory move from a progressive East Coast, left coast mentality to something more Scoop Jackson, something more mainstream, something more Joe Biden? Do you see any evidence of that? I do in the following sense. I think that uh, you know Joe Biden in particular had a way of connecting with a, 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 lot, a, a set of voters who turned out to be decisive in, in the last election, Dem- bo- cent- uh, kind of center-left folks from both the Democrat and the Republican Party had ignored those concerns, particularly around globalization for really decades on end. So putting policy aside, because I think it's a different discussion, you definitely need someone who can connect with, with, with blue-collar voters. Do you see any evidence of that? Uh, in by in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's too early, is it? I mean, yeah. to me, it's too early, right? We I mean, wait for the midterms. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think we have to wait, wait for the. I think the policy question is actually very interesting as well, which is that you know, should Democrats tack to the center or should yeah. they tack to the left? And I tend to think that uh, uh, there are a lot of folks asking Democrats, really, what have you got to answer for the fact that even as we close in on full employment, there are a lot of folks who are being left behind, and that's a yeah. really tough question. I got about fourteen more questions. We'll do it again with Jared Burns of the Center uh, on Budget and Policy Priorities uh, as well. Let me do a data check, a little wait to the tape after this day, that day, the next day of record highs. Reminding where the Dow is, 22,641, S&P 500, 25,34, and the VIX is stunning, 9.69. Sherman Greenspan would call that a quiescent VIX. From New York, from Washington, stay with us. This is Bloomberg. Steve Ratner with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. He's the chairman of Willett Advisors, uh, managing Michael Bloomberg's personal and philanthropic assets. Michael Bloomberg, of course, the uh, majority owner of the eponymous <laughs> Bloomberg LP, which owns uh, Bloomberg Radio, among other properties. Uh, Steve, great to have you with us here. We've been talking a little bit about uh, tax reform and the budget throughout the morning. Uh, give us your perspective on what we've gotten so far. Uh, safe to say there's more detail. I suppose it's all relative here. We've got nine pages, uh, plenty of unanswered questions. Uh, lawmakers are now charged with writing this thing, translating that into hundreds, if not more than a thousand pages of legislation. 
What are you watching? What are you most keenly interested in seeing how things are, are getting hammered down? I think the most interesting recent development, which I believe I heard on Bloomberg Radio this morning, is the yes. question about the state and local yeah. tax deduction, because that is uh, that was going to create a pay for of one point eight or one point nine trillion dollars, essentially funding a very large portion of the corporate tax cuts. There's been enormous pushback. The politics are ugly. There's uh, uh, anywhere from forty to fifty. I've heard different numbers. Republicans in high-tax states who are going to have trouble voting for this, starting with people like Peter King on Long Island. And if they lose that or have to carve it back substantially, uh, it really calls into serious question what is already a difficult problem of the deficit aspects of this plan. You know, we had to, we had this conversation about health care that it was so, so closely tied to the reconciliation process. We're seeing that used here uh, again. What are the consequences of that, and, and, and does this... Uh, the hope for tax reform have longevity if if that process can't be used if if we can't stick to this very short timetable that's been laid out by Republicans on the Hill. Well, I think the short timetable and reconciliation are slightly disconnected. Uh, reconciliation requires it to be done within the budget year. It doesn't, but the Republicans want it done this year because yeah. the politics are such that next year will be very very difficult. The only way this will happen is through reconciliation. I don't. You can see how difficult it has been. For the Republicans to put together 50 votes for any of the various health care proposals, imagine trying to put together 60 votes across party lines for any tax care, uh, a tax cut proposal. It's just not going to happen. So what the Republicans have to do is, is try to get 50 people in their party to agree on this thing. And it's going to be tough. And just one last point is, mm. of course, within reconciliation, it has to be it has to be budget neutral after the 10 year window mm. or else those tax cuts expire. And I think this general agreement that it's one thing to monkey around with individuals and say your tax cuts are going to expire. If you do that with business, you're probably losing a large part of the benefit you're getting by cutting the taxes in the first place. Steve, whatever anybody's politics, uh, a lot of people taking in and rethinking or the new thinking of Ken Burns' The Vietnam War. And within that is a concept of month after month after month in the White House around that table, the best and brightest you are as qualified as anyone in this nation to talk about the best and brightest. They were so frustrated that they bring you in as a czar. I, I don't know if a czar is a best and a brightest, but are, are we just moved on from actual merit and skill sets as being an item of importance, like an economic Stan Fisher? Or have we, have we just given up on the concept of best and brightest? Well, I, I, obviously, I have, I have a, a bit of a bias about this. I think the yeah. current president has appointed many people who no one would regard among the best and brightest. He's appointed some who people would regard, uh, whether it's Jim Mattis or, or, or H.R. McMaster or John Kelly, who people would regard as among the best and the brightest. Uh, I think, I think uh, again, I'm perhaps biased. I think President Obama did have a team, uh, an all-star team for the most part, of people advising and, and helping him. So, look, I, I hope we go back to the best and the brightest. I hope we I hope we yeah. can just fill these empty jobs because we need people. We need good people down there. But the problem, of course, at the moment is, uh, again, this may sound like a, a, a political statement. It's not meant that way. Nobody is going to, willing to go to work in the Trump administration yeah. right this minute. The Ratner charm is that you follow up punditry with actual hard nails work, you know, real reports that you put together, call from other sources of great acuity. What is the Ratner acuity on tax reform? What is the distinction you've come up with, or I should say what you're going to look forward to into 2018? 
One of the things that has struck me about this uh, tax bill, which I don't think the White House has really disputed, is that, in fact, and we don't have all the details, but based on what we know, it's something like a $300 billion tax increase for individuals as a whole and something like a $2.5 billion tax cut for companies as a whole. Uh, a lot of that through the pass-throughs, which, ba- which, contrary to what the White House says, essentially benefits high-income taxpayers. And I understand and agree with the importance of cutting the corporate tax rate and reforming the tor- corporate tax code. But there's an element of fairness in this that seems to be missing, and I think that's what you're going to see a lot of pushback on from both parties. From a, a fiscal perspective, how do you fix a problem like uh, Puerto Rico? We're, we're seeing this in acute focus uh, now. The president saying yesterday that... Um, the island's debt needs to be wiped out. Uh, that doesn't seem feasible to me, but it's safe to say that what we've seen happen here with this hurricane two weeks ago has uh, heightened the, the problems this island has already uh, been facing for some time now. From, from an investing perspective, what's the, the way out here for this, uh, this, this part of the United States? Well, it's a restructuring problem, and I, I don't, I, I, the president, you know, not, un, not uncharacteristically, is just sort of waving his hand and saying stuff that frankly doesn't make a lot of sense. As you know, we just went through a very painful restructuring in Puerto Rico, um, reduced the debt somewhat. It's still a lot of debt. I don't think, frankly, uh, however horrible this hurricane has been, the Puerto Ricans are entitled to simply have their debt wiped out. This is, you know, this, this is a moral hazard issue and a uh, credit and a credit market issue. I think the Puerto Ricans deserve a massive amount of federal aid, just as Louisiana and New Jersey and lots of and, and Florida and Texas have gotten when they've had hurricanes. And then I think we need to really take another look at economic development there. But the Puerto Ricans, uh, unfortunately, will and should be left with a substantial amount of debt because they accumulated it. And, you know, there's been a, a lot of talk here about the, the president's legislative agenda. Uh, what he's prioritizing, uh, safe to say that's changed week by week by week, and, and now there are these events that have interceded uh, as well. To what degree is it the White House's responsibility to shepherd through the tax reform process? Uh, you've worked within an administration. Uh, how essential is a leadership role from the, the executive branch when it's something that's in the, the provenance of, of, of the legislative branch to figure out? There's a pendulum in this whole thing. There, there, are, there are times when an administration will just go to Congress and say, we want to do health care, you figure it out. Uh, there are times when, and then people say, well, the White House isn't doing its job. It's not actually putting together a plan. There are times when the White House puts together a highly detailed plan, sends it to Congress, and immediately Congress says it's dead on arrival. So it's a, it's a very complicated dance between the, uh, the two ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. But mm-hmm. and, yes, absolutely the White House bears a major responsibility to herd the cats, go through the process, well, and try to bring people together. I, I just I can see it now, Steve Ratner. His next position, czar of cats, something like that. <laughs> Steve Ratner, thank you so much as always. Greatly appreciate it. Thank and, you, uh, Tom. Informed perspective here from many sources, uh, in his own opinion occasionally <laughs> as well. Mr. Ratner <laughs> with Willow Advisors. <laughs> meow, meow. <laughs> oh, well, look, there's cats out the window here in Washington. Oh. I can see them. Uh, now, should we do a data check? Did you data? make it that to means- the Trump Hotel, Thomas, you're so fond of doing on this trip? No, you've been nursing this cold. I did not. I've been nursing the plague. Yeah. Um, I, I did not make it. Oh, it's actually a bit of a ways away. It's yeah. like blocks, more than blocks. The, the tower visible from all corners of the city, though. I noticed yeah. last time, but yeah. anyway. I, you have to be like a donor to go up the tower. All right, get to the data. Sorry about that. <laughs>
Uh, this is, without question, the interview of the morning, and some of you may be stunned at that after the Vladimir Putin comments in Moscow, and of course my conversation with the Vice Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Stanley Fisher. But indeed, this is the interview of the morning. It is extraordinary that the leader and someone who's done so much in the last 10 years for the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, has simply come out and reaffirmed what we saw a few days ago, which is the Secretary of State of the United States of America should resign. Ambassador Haas joins us uh, now. His book is, of course, A World in Disarray. Richard, this is a thunderous moment when someone of the establishment, and of course your bi-party establishment, says the Secretary of State must go. Please discuss. Well, I want the Secretary of State, Tom, to be successful. I want it to be effective. And I just don't think it is possible under the circumstances. In part, it's because of this president and how he's organized this administration, his own conduct with the tweeting, his public disparagement of the Secretary of State, like we saw the other day, the lack of resources and staff that he's given to the Secretary of State, the special role for Jared Kushner at the White House. All this makes any Secretary of State's job extraordinarily difficult. But this Secretary of State, I think, has made it, uh, made it even tougher on himself by not pressing for resources, by not pressing uh, for staff. Now he has his own criticism of the president that, that, that's come out. And I just don't see how this, how this can work. Again, I want this, this is not an, uh, an ad hominem attack on Rex Tillerson. Mm-hmm. I haven't spoken. Uh, it's simply my own take is that he cannot succeed in this job. I also think this, you know, this show is listened to by a lot of business people. I think it's also a lesson that what works in a corporate environment doesn't necessarily translate or transfer when it's moved into a political environment. Well, we saw it with Paul O'Neill at Treasury, who did not succeed, and I think we're seeing it with Rex Tillerson at State. David, jump in here, please. Yeah, I wanted to ask you just about uh, what you would like to see in terms of reaction. I was putting stuff together as, as we saw the tweets about uh, North Korea and Secretary Tillerson. Uh, I, I looked at the secretary's schedule. He would have been in air at that point. He spent 12 hours in Beijing meeting with officials there, including the country's uh, president. How would you like to have seen him respond? And, and, and uh, was there a moment for him to speak out against what he was reading uh, on Twitter? Well, the president did those tweets. I, if I had been in his shoes, that's when I would have left. I would have said, you're pulling the rug out from under me. Diplomacy is an essential national security tool. The Secretary of State is the country's chief diplomat. My success is your success, Mr. President, and you need to empower me, not undermine me. So either I would have resigned or I would have had a showdown, though I expect you know, given the last eight months, there would have been any number of previous showdowns. I interviewed the former Treasury Secretary last week and in doing research for that noted that he was the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources for a time and we were going to talk about staffing at the Treasury, but I noticed that that position at the State Department right now is is unfilled. Uh, the gentleman filling that role, John Sullivan, has been ele- elevated to Deputy Secretary overall. Uh, and the sense that I got from talking to Nick Wadhams, who covers the State Department for us, is there's no effort underway to fill that position. This is like the, the COO uh, of the State Department, as, as I understand it. Given what's happened here, what's been filled and what hasn't, uh, how, how bad a shape is the State Department in right now? In other words, if, if Secretary Tillerson were to leave, what would his successor inherit? What his successor would inherit is a State Department that's the terrible morale, senior Foreign Service officers taking early retirement, 
virtually all the regional and functional assistant secretary jobs are, are empty. The more senior undersecretary jobs are empty. Most of our embassies are not being headed by ambassadors. So what his successor should do, if and when that comes about, is make dealing with all this a condition of taking right. the job. And again, the argument should be, Mr. President, uh, in order to succeed, I need this, and my success is your success. If you're just joining us, Bloomberg Surveillance from Washington, from New York today, in a conversation with Richard Haas. He's president of the Council on Foreign Relations, author of a wonderfully concise and must-read, A World in Disarray, and he has said uh, in a statement on Twitter, a statement, I should say, I don't know if it was 140 or 200 characters, no. I can't remember, <laughs> uh, something to the effect the Secretary of State now must resign. I've been watching Ken Burns, the Vietnam War Ambassador Haas, and you look at the best and brightest around the table, and I, I think a name that so many of our listeners don't know, Dean Rusk, it was everything opposite of what we're dealing with now in Washington. If we move on, are there other Dean Rusks out there, people that are steeped in qualifications to finally take a given position? Again, it, it's, it takes both sides of the relationship, Tom. This president has to be prepared. Uh, he, what he needs is the diplomatic equivalent, say, of what Secretary Mattis is doing at the Pentagon. He needs somebody of real stature, but then he needs to give him, he needs to give him authority. Uh, he hasn't been willing to do it on the diplomatic side, and that would mean reigning in his own tweets. I think reigning in the role of, of Jared Kushner, again, this is not an ad hominem attack. It's simply you can't have multiple secretaries of uh, of state. And he has to stand behind the secretary of state in the way, say, that George Herbert Walker Bush did with, with Jim Baker. But there's people out there, there's people with foreign policy experience who could could do, could do the job, but only if the president allows them to do the job. As you've observed all of this, I wonder if you could uh, help us understand the difference here between how effectively, I don't think arguably, uh, uh, Jim Mattis has run the Pentagon versus how Rex Tillerson has run the State Department. It seems like uh, he has been uh, immune from a lot of the scrutiny and criticism that Rex Tillerson uh, has been. How has he been able to work with what seems like a lot of autonomy, even with his criticism out this morning uh, of the, uh, the the president's stance on the Iran deal? He's able to say things that are influential and not uh, meet the, the, the might of the president in doing that. What's he done that Rex Tillerson hasn't? Well, first of all, he began with an advantage, which he had real standing in the foreign policy national security world, given his military uh, background. He also had much more experience in the, in the ways of policymaking. Rex Tillerson was knowledgeable or is knowledgeable about the world. That's not to say it's not the same thing as being knowledgeable about how palace policy is made in Washington, D.C. Then Jim Mattis at the Pentagon got a large amount of resources. Uh, Secretary Tillerson is not and didn't, didn't ask for them. Mattis began with all the military in place. So you had a large bureaucracy. Uh, plus, he's dealt rather regularly with the Washington establishment and the press. He hasn't isolated himself in the same way. So virtually every step of the way, he's gone about performing his job differently. What do we know of how those two gentlemen get along, uh, the, the, the way in which they're working together on foreign policy, if at all? Well, they seem to be getting along. I think that, you know, Secretary Tillerson, along with Secretary Manis and others, seem to have a decent working relationship. Uh, but it doesn't matter if the national security process doesn't work well. You can't have a situation, for example, where we're dealing with North Korea and the United States is threatening a trade war with, with South Korea or, 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 or charging the South Korean president with appeasement. You need a much more disciplined national security pro process. and need the president to put away his, his Twitter account. You just can't have that. Is General McMaster uh, part of this equation, or has he been pushed to the side? I've heard so little about him recently. 
Well, he's part of the equation. He's a good man, but again, he's in a near impossible, or to be more generous, extremely difficult job, uh, given you know, the whole, the, the essential quality of a national security process is discipline. And it's very hard to run a disciplined operation in this administration. Richard Haas, thank you so much on short notice this morning, Ambassador Haas. Of course, the author of A World in Disarray, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, David, do you have the ambassador's tweet in front of you? I that can we pull can it up here, here? Uh, very quickly, but uh, it's certainly uh, something that he uh, has put into to a more forceful form here. It was something that he tweeted a, a little bit earlier uh, in the yes. week, but he's saying here, Rex Tillerson has been dealt a bad hand by the president of the United States and has played it badly. For both reasons, he cannot be effective secretary of state and should resign. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.